But this morning and next Sunday, and we talked a little bit about this last week, Clayton and I are, are preaching about death. Jesus' death on our behalf, but also each of our personal deaths. And it's important, I think, to, to, for you to know that these sermons have been in the plan for months, really for probably close to a year, we've been kind of wanting or being led to uh, preach on this topic and kind of trying to find a good spot for it. So these things have been in the works for a long time, and we resolved at the beginning of the year that we would preach them no matter what was happening in the life of our church. At the time, little did we suspect that the planet would be in the grip of a viral pandemic uh, by late March. But in some ways, that exposes one of the contradictions about death, is that death is always a timely topic, because people die all the time. But at the same time, death is, maybe should we say, an unspeakable topic, both because nobody is really thrilled to sit and think about the prospect of their own death, but also because none of us are experts. We're all amateurs when it comes to death. For the most part, none of us have died. We don't know what that experience is like. There is the one guy who died and came back, Jesus, and so that's why we're going to be listening to him and hopefully getting some wisdom for him about that topic uh, today. And I think this in part is what has made the COVID-19 pandemic so stressful, and there's a lot of aspects to this, but I think that one of them is, is that we on a global scale are being confronted with our frailty and our mortality. And I also want to make clear that, that these two sermons about death are not about grieving others' deaths, but about your attitude to your own death. And, and really the reason why that is is because there is no proper way to grieve. Uh, we can't really control how grief comes out of us in those times, and, I don't, and the Lord doesn't expect us to. Uh, grief has many different forms, and the only good way to grieve is just to let yourself grieve. Um, you know, the only mistake that people make is when they try and suppress that. And so these sermons are not about how to grieve uh, other people. Um, not about grieving other people, but rather how we approach our own death. And a few months ago, or maybe it was probably close to a year or so ago, but Dorothy Schertz and I, I was over visiting with her, and I don't remember which one of us brought it up, but one of us just brought up the topic of death. And so we sat and talked about it for a little while, and Dorothy, of course, has been on planet Earth three times as long as I have. She's watched and seen and witnessed a lot more death than I have. But I was struck by the fact that I think in our society, we tend to assume that older folks are somehow closer to death than the rest of us, when in reality, we're all equally close to death. Right? The survival rate for both Dorothy and I is zero. And that was impressed upon me even further as I was finishing this sermon last night, hiding under my stairs during the tornado warning. It's like, well, we really are just very delicate sacks of meat that God loves. We must talk about death as Christians. Not only does death sit at the center of our good news, we and everyone we know will die unless the Lord returns. What hope do we have to offer? How do we live lives of meaning under death's long shadow? These are questions that the gospel can answer. 
And part of the good news is that even Jesus died. Right in the creed that we read a few weeks ago, says he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Christ's death was certainly unique in its effect and what it did, but the fact that it was a death was not unique at all. It was the ultimate way in which Jesus shared in the completeness of human nature besides our sin. He shared in the burden of death. And in his death, Jesus not only absorbed the wrath of God against sin, which is the unique aspect of what happened there, but he also provides us an example of a death well died. And so we've been in the Gospel of Mark since New Year's, looking at what Jesus does, and then exploring how we can also do those same things. And there are obviously some things that only Jesus can do, and dying for the sins of humankind is one of those things. But even if we can't do the exact thing that Jesus does, we can still learn the Jesus way of doing it. And we've seen throughout Mark that Jesus' life was a clash of kingdoms in the war between the good creator God and the forces of evil and chaos. And 1 John 3, chapter 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared, the reason Jesus came, was to destroy the works of the devil. The other things are also true. He came to die, or he came to die for the sins of mankind. He came to show us God's love. But it's, it's notable that when John chose to say, here's why Jesus came, what he said was, he came to destroy the works of the evil one. And while we know and believe that on the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus won the decisive victory, obviously his conquest is not complete. This pandemic is evidence that death and its henchmen, chaos, disease, and panic still obviously have claws sunk in our world. The battle is not done. But in Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, there is great hope and help for us as we follow him to the path to death. And we'll be in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38 this morning, which I believe will be on the screen behind me. This passage is the hinge upon which the Gospel of Mark turns. It comes right in the middle. There are 16 chapters in Mark. This is the eighth chapter of Mark, so it's right in the middle of the book. Before this, Jesus has been proclaiming God's kingdom by word, by kindness, by miraculous power. He's been telling evil spirits and the people he heals not to tell anybody who he is. He's been keeping his identity a secret. He's only been speaking in parables. He's been keeping one step ahead of his enemies. But the secrecy of Jesus ends here in these mountains north of Galilee. Jesus stopped concealing who and what he was, and he knew what that would cost him and those that followed him. And so as we read these verses, we will find much to consider about death and dying. We see the significance of Jesus' death we see a way through our own resistance to speak of and think about our own deaths. And we see wisdom for how to die well, for how to die as a gift to God's people. And we will consider each of those in turn. As so we're starting in the passage, the first verse, 27, 
Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And for ancient people, geography had religious meaning. Everything had religious meaning, and that included geography. There were sacred places, like the temple, or in, the, in Jerusalem itself, and the mountain that Jerusalem was built on. But there were also cursed places, or haunted places, in the biblical worldview. Regions, cities, closely associated with demons and evil. The Roman city of Caesarea Philippi, where they're at, where Jesus and the disciples are, was located in the ancient realm of Bashan. And if you've read a lot of the Bible, that name should be familiar. B-A-S-H-A-N, Bashan. And Bashan was really the Mordor of ancient Israel. It was the Dark Lord's realm from the Lord of the Rings, if you're familiar with those books and movies. It was the source of evil. Bashan was considered the gateway to the underworld and a home of evil spirits. The name Bashan means the place of the serpent. And Caesarea Philippi itself was a city built around the idolatrous worship of the Roman emperor Caesar. So Jesus is basically having this chat with his disciples on hell's front porch. And I think that tells us something important about Jesus. He hid his identity as the Messiah for all this time. But when he finally did reveal himself, he did so basically right in front of the evil one. He didn't do it in a corner somewhere. He came right up to the front door and said, here I am. Jesus doesn't sit somewhere safe and clean and send us out into a dark and dangerous world to do his bidding. He's walked streets of filth and disease, and he still does. He's not like David was, sitting at home while the armies went out to go to war and getting himself into trouble. He's like Moses or Joshua or Esther, the first one into danger, the lone leader defying the false gods and thrones on behalf of his people. And so they come to Caesarea Philippi, they come to hell's front porch, this region of Bashan, and the passage goes on. And on the way, he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? A good question, one that millions of people continue to ask to this day. And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? This is the big moment in the Gospel of Mark. And they, they get it. The disciples, the, the, the disciples stick the landing, kind of, for a minute. Peter answers him, well, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And he strictly charged them not to tell no one about him. In verse 29, where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, that is the first time that the title Christ or Messiah has appeared in the gospel since the very first verse of Mark. So Mark begins by telling us, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. And then for the next eight chapters, not a word is said about that until Peter and the other disciples recognize who and what he is uh, in the mountains of Bashan. Sort of. The disciples sort of get it. right? Peter and the others recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, the chosen king of Israel and the nations, but they don't really understand what that means. And, and, and why they don't understand what that means is that the revelation of the Christ goes hand in hand, not with, so let's get an army together and march up to Jerusalem, but it goes hand in hand with Jesus announcing his death. Continuing in verse 31. 
And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Unlike other religious leaders in the past and the present, Jesus never asks his people to do things that he himself is not willing to do. He died. He took up his cross, shouldered humiliation, misplaced blame, the wrath of God. The greatest point of conflict in this clash of kingdoms that we've been talking about since January is Jesus on the cross. The power of God, the kingdom of God, the power of the evil one crashed together on Jesus' broken and crucified body. And it appeared that God had lost. He died. But we see that it was a big trick, so to speak, because in dying, Jesus killed death. He cut the dragon in half from inside its own stomach. He died for our sins, for our salvation. He died to redeem us from fear and condemnation. And this wasn't optional. There wasn't another path forward. Jesus says in verse 31 that he taught them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, must be rejected, and must be killed. His death was a gift for God's people. It was many things, but one of the things it was was a gift for God's people. And in Jesus, your death can also be a gift for God's people. But Peter, and if we're honest, most of us think that that's crazy talk. And we see in verse 32 that Peter grabs the microphone from Jesus. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Lord, such a thing could never happen to you. What are you talking about? You've gone off script. And there is much in Peter's response that is good and very understandable. Death is bad. <laughs> That's not news. Death is not welcome. Death is not our friend. Death is a tragedy every time. Death should not be how God's kingdom comes. Peter's right about that. It should not be how God's kingdom comes. And in Peter, we find one of the tensions that is at work in the gospel and in the story of God. The tension between what should be and what is. Ideally, Jesus wouldn't have had to have died. But he did. Ideally, you and I would not die. Adam and Eve would have never ate, eaten the fruit. Everything would have been great from the very beginning. But that's just not the story that we find ourselves in. Thankfully, God rescues us from where we are, not from where we should be, especially not from where we think we should be. And there on hell's front porch, Peter tries to talk Jesus out of dying. Peter couldn't see past his immediate material and political horizon. If Jesus died, then Peter's hope for God's kingdom for rescue vanishes. If Jesus dies, then the Romans and the devil win. That's what's in Peter's mind. Verse 33 says, But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
Another way that these verses are notable is this is the last time that the enemy is specifically named in the Gospel of Mark. He's around for the rest of it, certainly, working behind the scenes. Clayton talked about that last week through uh, wicked and corrupt human rulers. But this is the last time he is explicitly named in the Gospel of Mark. And I think that that's significant. Because I think that part of what this is for Jesus is his decisive refusal and turning away from the temptation that maybe there's another way to do this whole kingdom of God thing without dying. Right? Jesus refused to refuse to face his own death. All Peter could see were his worldly circumstances, the stakes of his mortal life. But Jesus rebukes him. His mind is not set on the things of God, but on the things of man. And I think that there's a rebuke for us in that as well. This is the key in facing the reality of death, with Christ, of our personal death with Christian hope. We have to trust that death is not the end, that God's promises are true. And in fact, I think the reason that many of us are unmoved by the good news and the promises of the world to come is exactly because we have never truly grappled with the fact that we will personally die. I think about that sometimes. I think, you know, one of these days, and some of you have made me hurt, it's not really a joke, but some of you have made me, probably heard me say this, a version of this comment before, one of these days it's going to be me that they bring up in a box in that little elevator, and they wheel me in here. Hopefully there will be, you know, the room will be full of people, and there will be like, elephants and things, and it'll be, you know, but one day it's going to be me, right? I'm preaching here now, but in who knows how long, it'll be me in a casket. Jesus says in verse 34, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow for whoever would save his life, some translations have soul, it's the same word, it's one Greek word that can be translated as life or soul. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? What does Jesus mean? But to follow him, we have to deny ourselves and take up our cross. It means that to follow Jesus is to prepare to die. We are following Jesus to the place of the skull where we will experience the humiliation of death just as he did. Every one of us will die, no exceptions, if the Lord should continue to tarry. We will all give up our possessions, all of them. We will all leave our families behind. And we can either start embracing our cross today and meet death willingly, surrendered to God as Jesus did, or we can be devoured by death anyway. For whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. There's not another option, folks. If we want to die hopeful, 
then we must live hopeful now. If we want to die confident in God's promises, then we must live confident in God's promises now. And absolutely, many of us have relatives or friends who experienced what are called deathbed conversions, where they did not live hopefully and confident in God's promises until right at the very end. And thank God that he can be so gen- that he is so generous and gracious as to reach someone in the last hours or the last days or the last months of their lives. But for those of us who know the Lord now, we can prepare ourselves now for the day of our death. Jesus lived every day of his life knowing he was headed to death. And as his followers, so must we. And it's all right to be afraid of dying. I am, when I think about it, or mostly just afraid of how it's going to happen. There's so much about it that's unknown. And the big question is how, right? What does it feel like? How fast does it happen? Do you know immediately when you've died? Do you kind of sit and wait somewhere for a little while, or do you see the Lord immediately? I mean, there's a million questions we could ask because we just don't know. And I think that's much of what makes it frightening. And then that's all right. We can be afraid, but we can also face it with courage if we've prepared ourselves by taking up the cross every day of our lives and following Jesus to the place where they crucify people. Brothers and sisters, don't die with things left unsaid to your loved ones. Say them today. Don't die with any resentment in your heart. Forgive, seek reconciliation today. Don't die miserably, clinging desperately to your stuff and your wealth until the very end. Start giving it away today. Don't die surprised. (laughs) How could this happen to me? The world will kill you. So give Jesus your idols of safety and security and start taking risks in love today and wisdom today. Jesus teaches us how to die well, how to die as a gift for God's people. I think we need to be clear that a good death is not about how or where or when we die. Most of us will have zero control over those things. The best death we can aim for is a quiet passing in bed, surrounded by our family, but we can't ensure that. And if you imagine yourself giving a wonderful deathbed sermon, that probably won't happen. Those who die in a facility are often sedated and unconscious, or unconscious when the time comes. You will not be in your right mind to offer up some wonderful flowery exposition. Even sudden or unexpected death can be prepared for if you start preparing today. Dying a good death is not about how your death actually happens. We have no control over that or what you say as it's happening. Again, usually not a lot of control over that. A good death consists in whether your death was a gift to God's people. And there's many ways, many things we could have talked about, but I chose just to talk about one. One of the ways your death can be a gift to God's people is by planning your own funeral or planning some of your own funeral. And we see in this passage that Jesus faced up to death. He didn't beat around the bush. He spoke plainly, as it says in verse 32. The way of Jesus is to acknowledge death, not ignore it. 
And one way we can do that is to plan our funeral. And we have, Clayton's developed like a little funeral planning sheet. Uh, <laughs> we thought about mailing it out to all of you, but then realized that would probably not go well for you to open up a thing from the church that goes, here's your funeral planning sheet. <laughs> See you in a few months. Yeah, no, no. So we didn't do that, but we have those. So if you want one of those, you know, very much, you're very welcome to ask, and we'll, we'll get one of those to you. And now people say that they don't care about their funeral because they won't be there. Fair enough, you won't. But every Christian should, at least a little bit, put some thought, put some guidance with somebody about what their funeral should be like. And here's why. That service is your final earthly opportunity to witness to who Jesus is and what he's done for you. It is a way to spite the devil and preach the gospel from beyond the grave. It's a statement to the powers of darkness that even death, that not even death, can shut the gospel up. It affirms the communion and the resurrection of the saints because we can hear your heart for the Lord even though your physical heart has stopped beating. So my encouragement for you, which would have been the encouragement even if the pandemic and these things weren't happening, is to think about your own funeral. And remember, you're just as close to death as the oldest person you know. And the good news, of course, is that death is not the end. I think that's part of why we can talk about things like this, because we don't approach our funerals hopelessly. Jesus rose again, and so will we when he returns. And Jesus gives us a warning at the end of this passage in verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And my reading of that is that Jesus will be ashamed of those who claimed to belong to him and yet ignored everything he did and said. He will be ashamed of those who lived their lives and died their deaths as if none of this was true. And my prayer is that none of our Calvary family will shame Jesus on the great day of his return because we lived and we died as Jesus did. Your death can be a gift to God's people as Jesus' own death was when you testify to the good news even in death. When someone dies and they leave behind a long trail of blessed lives, encouragement, service done in secret, that was a good death. When someone leaves behind a list of hymns that they want sung or scriptures they want read at their funeral, that was a good death. These are good deaths because they snatch the victory from the devil's jaws and turn the only power he has inside out. So we can join Paul in his praise in the resurrection in 1 Corinthians, where, O death, is thy victory? Where, O death, is thy sting? Church, may we seek to live our lives in the light of the gospel and in the shadow of death, knowing that Jesus is with us the whole way and he will not abandon us or forsake us. Let's pray. Lord, again, we do thank you for this good day. And Father, we ask, as all of us probably over the last couple of weeks 
have considered what could happen to us uh, over the course of this outbreak. Lord, again, many of us were under a tornado warning last night. Lord, I pray that you would grant each of us courage, you would grant each of us faith. Lord, you will not abandon us in the hour of our need. You will walk with us all the way, all the way through death and to what you have for us and what comes after. Lord, we thank you for dying for us, as we sang a few minutes ago. Dying for our sins, dying to reconcile us to the Father that we may be adopted as his daughters and sons. What wondrous love and grace have been showered upon us. Lord, may we live like it's true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.